0: Today, we're going to wrap up our series of messages out of the book of Acts uh, that we've been doing, that we've been calling Awake. And uh, we're going to wrap the series up pretty much where Luke wraps up the book of Acts in the last chapter with a story about a snake, Uh, which is a little strange, honestly, you know, but it's cool if you're the pastor because you know, whether you'll admit it or not, that everybody here kind of likes a good snake story. So, um, automatically, you're attracted to it. And we all love a good snake story unless we're in the snake story in which case not so great. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to be dealing with snake stories, I want to deal with them in a book. I want to watch them on HD TV. I want to see them on Animal Planet, you know. If I'm actually going to be physically present with a snake, I want about 4 inches of glass between me and the snake and then I'm fine. But not otherwise. I thought about some of the snake stories that I've actually personally, unfortunately, been involved in. Uh, I realized that there's kind of a pattern to them. They go basically like this. Tom is walking along. He's completely oblivious of the presence of the snake, and therefore all is well. Tom then becomes quite alarmingly aware of the presence of the snake, no matter how large or small. And here's the final act. Tom runs away, screaming like a three-year-old girl. That's it every snake story but one. The only snake story that I was ever actually involved in that I look back on with any degree of fondness involved my cousin. It involved some kind of a black water snake or something we came across in our grandparents' backyard. It involved a bow and arrow, so now you know where it's going. And the story culminated in the creation of a belt. And uh I like that snake story. Now, I realize that if you love snakes, you don't like that snake story, but I'd ask you to consider three things in my defense. And the first one's really the clincher I was a 10 year old boy. I mean, that's it. That is a valid insanity defense to any crime anywhere in the world. It's like you hear that people do something and you think, good grief, what were they thinking? And then you find out they were a 10 year old boy and you go, okay. Makes sense. My cousin, secondly, shot the snake and made the belt. Thirdly, he had to because I was running. I was rounding the corner of Grandma's house, all right, screaming like a three-year-old girl. I am of no danger to snakes. I don't like snakes. They're scary. And I'll tell you, if you think they're scary when you find them in Grandma's backyard, they're a whole lot scarier in the Bible. The snake, guys, in the Scripture, is the very emblem of evil and of death. And here's the thing, you know, when we get to the end of the book of Acts and we come to Luke's snake story, he's sort of assuming you already know that. In fact, he's kind of assuming that you're bringing to his story all of this biblical background regarding the serpent. And so, for example, he thinks that you know that when you go to the very first pages of the Bible, you find another snake story. And it's the very famous snake story of the first man and the first woman, of Adam and Eve. And they're living in this idyllic place, the Garden of Eden, in perfect relationship with God, in perfect relationship with each other. That is until Satan himself, the great adversary of God, the liar, the deceiver, the tempter, the destroyer of souls, enters into the garden and he comes to them in the form of a what? Of a Labrador? No! No! Because, as any good dog lover will tell you, the dog is far too noble of a beast to be involved in that kind of a story. As I thought about it, Satan really only had two options the snake and the cat. <laughs> My only question was how did he choose? Kind of picture him reaching into the pocket of his red spandex pants and pulling out a quarter, you know. It's like, whoop, looks like it's going to be a snake. Hope Adam doesn't need a belt. Satan comes as a snake. And he comes tempting. He comes lying. He comes deceiving. He comes destroying. And he hasn't changed much over the years. He does the same thing today. You know, he slithers across the garden of our heart. It's interesting. You get to the book of Proverbs, and he says, guard your heart. You know, I mean, you've heard that verse if you've been around for a while. But the image is that of a garden, and as one who is to tend the garden, as one who has a hoe in his hand, and when the snake comes, is not supposed to run away screaming like a three-year-old girl, but instead is supposed to chop off the head of the serpent. For he will come. And he slithers across the territory of our heart and he kind of enters into our own little garden and he comes along and he whispers all kinds of lies. Pretty convincing lies, though. He makes amazing cases. He's a great advocate for darkness. He enters in and he says things like, you know, the gospel of Jesus, not for you. And here's why. Because God could never love you. And then he just starts recounting all the people who haven't. Well, what about your relationship with your dad? Thought about that one? How about your mom? She didn't really, I mean, not the way she should have. And your ex-husband, do I need to get past the word ex or ex-wife? You know what I mean? That's rejection on a profound level. Person after person, rejection after rejection. He piles it up like a great mountain and says, look at this. He could never love you. The gospel is not for you. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It's straight from the serpent's mouth. It does not accord with the Bible. Do not ever underestimate the ability of the infinite God of the universe to love anyone, including you. Or maybe he slithers across the garden of your heart and He says, well, you know, Jesus is the great forgiver of sins, but he's not quite great enough to forgive your sins. I mean, he forgives average person sins, but again, let's mount up the pile. You know, remember that thing you did? Or those things you did? Or that stuff you're still doing? Maybe the average guy. Look around. These other people, he can forgive their sins, but that's because they're better than you, quote-unquote. And that's a lie, too. Don't ever underestimate the value of the blood of the Son of God to wash away the mountain of your sin. There's no sin he can't forgive. Or he comes with another lie. And he comes and says, you know, your net worth as a person is tied to, well, let's state it, your net worth as a person. Wow, that makes us feel a little tenuous lately, doesn't it? Or maybe he comes to you and he says, you know, your value as a person is tied up in how you look. And so like you're crazed about how you look because you're you're just, you know, I mean, that's what life is all about for you. That's a really bad lie, isn't it? Because, you know, I mean, as we get older, we don't get better looking. Lie upon lie. Satan comes in the Bible in the form of a snake, the very emblem of evil and death. And here's the thing Luke is assuming you already know that by the time you get to his snake story. Now, he's assuming also that you know that right after that story, God enters into the picture and he kind of calls a little party together and he says, Adam, Eve, and here's the serpent. And then he speaks to the serpent and he lays down this prophetic statement that is clearly about Jesus. He talks about the seed of the woman which is biologically and biblically nonsensical. The seed is always in the man. Not here, though. He's speaking of a virgin birth, of a one who will be born only of a woman. You've got to wait till you get all the way to the New Testament before that makes sense to you. But when you get there, it does, doesn't it? It's the virgin birth. It's Jesus, the seed of the woman. And what is he going to do? Well, he is going to receive the deadly bite of the serpent. But where is he going to be bit? On his heel as he steps down on the serpent's head. There is one who has received the bite of the serpent. There is one who has crushed his head. That gives you some options. So you can be in the snake story or not. But more on that later. So Luke assumes you know that. He assumes that you're familiar with the Psalms, that you know in Psalm 140, for example, that the psalmist speaks of the wicked as, well, deadly snakes. Deliver me, O Lord, from who? From evil men. Just follow those kinds of words. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things. Good grief. They plan evil things in their heart, and they stir up wars continually. Make their tongue as sharp as golden retrievers. No, as serpents. And under their lips is the venom of asps. See, Luke figures you know that. He figures you know Isaiah. Where Isaiah speaks of the serpent whom the Lord will punish, the great dragon whom he will kill. He writes this, he says, In that day, meaning the day of judgment, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing Maltese. No. Have you seen a Maltese? They're so cute. The fleeing serpent. Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Luke assumes you know also Jeremiah. Or Jeremiah records, and this is interesting, the judgment of the Lord which will come in the bite of the serpent. Now hang on to that because you can be in the snake story or you can let Jesus be in the snake story for you. Jeremiah writes this, this is God speaking. He says, for behold, I am sending among you serpents, adders that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, declares the Lord. And Luke assumes that you know Numbers 21, a really strange story. But a great story about the people of Israel, you know, who later in the New Testament were told are an example to us. So we're supposed to study them and learn from them. Well, what happens to them? They're out in the wilderness. They're in this place of deprivation. They're out there with Moses. There's no food in the wilderness is the idea. And that's hard to relate to for us, you know, 2009, Fort Lauderdale, even with a down economy. Most of us are feeling pretty good, at least in terms of how much food is in the pantry. And if you're not, then we'd like to help you with that. But that's not our concern. We're not starving physically, at least not most of us. But we live in a wilderness spiritually. And many of us are starving in that regard. But anyway, they're out in the wilderness, and there's no food, and so they come to Moses, and Moses cries out to God. That's what he does, and what does God do? In answer to this problem, he sends bread from heaven. It's this stuff called manna. The word manna means, what is it? I don't know how they came up with that. I'm just guessing they're gathering it up, going, what is it? I don't know, what is it? I don't know, why don't you give me some of that, what is it? You know, and that's it. But it's a heavenly bread, is the idea. It's the bread that comes down from heaven that satisfies the hunger of the people of God. kind of gives meaning to when Jesus says, you know, I'm the true bread. I'm the bread that came from heaven. But anyway, they're pretty excited about it, but only for a little while. And then they reject the bread from heaven. They despise the bread from heaven. They hate the bread from heaven. What happens when we reject the heavenly bread? It says, and the Lord then sent fiery serpents. It doesn't mean they came breathing fire. It means when they bit you, it burned. Fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. To be bitten by the serpent in the Bible is to die, and to reject the bread that comes from heaven is to be subject to that bite. So the people are alarmed, you know, understandably, and they come running back to Moses, and they're feeling real repentant, and Moses then goes to God and cries out to God again for the deliverance from the bite of a serpent, and what does the Lord do? It's really interesting, and again, it's kind of strange, you know, it's like, I don't get this. It makes no sense until you get to the New Testament. It says, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. I want you to make a brass snake that looks kind of like these ones that are running around biting you guys. And I want you to put it on a wood pole is what he says. And everyone who is bitten, everyone who experiences the deadly bite of the serpent, when he sees it, when he looks upon the snake on the pole, shall live. To look in faith upon the serpent on the pole, the wood pole, is to be healed of the deadly bite of the serpent. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole and if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live, which makes no sense until you get to the story of Nicodemus in the New Testament. This man who comes to Jesus at night asking questions that are, I think you could generally categorize as who are you and what are you here to do? And Jesus says, well, why don't you just give me the Old Testament? Let's flip back to the book of Numbers 21 because I'm going to make sense of this for you. This is what I've come to do. This is is who I am. John 3, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent. This is Jesus speaking. He's saying, As Moses lifted up the serpent, which, again, was on a wood pole, in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on a wood pole, on a cross, on a tree. Why? Why? That whoever believes in him, whoever looks upon him on the tree in faith, in faith, may have eternal life. So you can be in the snake story, or you can just come to Jesus who's conquered the snake for you. So, anyway, you know, Luke comes to the end of his book, and he's going to give us this snake story. But he comes there assuming that you bring all of those images with you. Do you bring all of that understanding of what the serpent is to bring to bear on this story. And he gives us this story again, sort of at the beginning of the last chapter of his book. If you're familiar with the ending of the book of Acts, what he's doing is he's chronicling Paul's journey to the city of Rome. It's a journey that's taken at least in part on a boat, okay? So Paul goes out on a ship. He's traveling to Rome with everybody else who happens to be on the ship with him. But it's a ship that then gets caught in this massive storm, which makes the story even more exciting if you think about it. It's kind of cool. It's a storm, shipwreck story, and a snake. It doesn't get any better than that. But they're out there in the midst of the sea. They're on this boat, and there's this huge storm that comes up, and it doesn't blow through in a couple of hours or even a couple of days. It rages day upon day upon day upon day upon day until the point where everyone, captain, crew, all the passengers have given up all hope of living. They haven't even eaten in 14 days. And Paul calls a little meeting. Now follow the details. He brings together this little band of brothers, if you will, around whom the storm is raging. And what happens? Well, Luke, who was there, tells us. He says, As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you, And when he had said these things, what does he do in this intimate little gathering? He took the bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it. and He began to eat, and then they were all encouraged, you see, and they ate some food for themselves. What's going on? We've got men united by a storm, gathered intimately, and one who takes the bread, who blesses the bread, who breaks the bread, who distributes the bread, and together with These guys, he eats the bread. They enjoy a last supper together before then going out to face the hostility of the storm. Which is what happens next. You know, one of the sailors spies land. It's an island. And so they make for the land. But between them and the land, there are a bunch of rocks, and they run the ship up onto the rocks, and the waves beat the ship to death, and everything that they were clinging to for safety is destroyed, and they are literally scattered on the sea. But they all make it ashore safely as, as Paul had predicted. And then we read this. It says, after we, so Luke's there, were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta, and the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire. Can you remember that? And welcomed us all, for it had begun to rain and it was cold. And when Paul had then gathered a bundle of sticks, what is Paul carrying? They're like sticks. No, wood. He's carrying the wood. He put them in the fire. Oh, and here's the snake. A viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. One who carries the wood is pierced in the hand by the very emblem of evil and death. And it's a deadly snake because it says the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand and they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. So they're looking at all that's just happened to this guy, shipwreck, snake bite, and they're thinking, clearly he must be a criminal. Circumstantially, that's the most logical result of their thinking. So they say, no doubt this man must be a murderer, and here's why. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice, he word has not allowed him to live. But what kind of justice has not allowed him to live? Is it the justice of man? Did the police force come along and put, you know, Paul in a boat and force him to go through the shipwreck and swim the shore and barely make it out with his life? Clearly not. Did his mom grab him by the ear and drag him out into the backyard of grandma's home and say, now, son, I want you to put your hand out there, and I want you to let the viper pierce it? No. These people are looking at the circumstances of Paul's life, and they're concluding, rightly or wrongly, that heaven itself must be against this man. They recognize, at least, that there is a judgment that comes from heaven, which was very convicting to me, because as I thought about that, I thought, man, these pagans, who you know, don't even believe in the real and true God, have a greater respect and fear for God than I think most believers do. Why do you do what you do and don't do what you don't do? Just think about it for a minute. Because it mostly has nothing to do with God. If we don't speed, it's because we don't want to get a ticket, and then our insurance goes up, and it's a bummer. We don't steal. is because we don't want to get caught and go to jail. We don't cheat on our husband or wife. It's because divorce is very expensive, costly, painful. We don't want to do this to our kids. You follow how this logic goes? We don't do drugs. It's because we don't want to ruin our health. And, you know, we've seen other folks, and then it really is a problem. And, you know, it's like consequences, and forget that. We don't have sex before marriage. It's because we don't want to get pregnant, or we don't want to get a disease, or we don't want to get a bad reputation. But we're not concerned about our reputation before Almighty God. Neither are we concerned for the consequences that are real that come from him. There is a justice that is cosmic. It is a justice of God. There is a judgment for sin. And you can be in the snake story, or you can come to Jesus. Who should we fear? I think Jesus speaks to that in Matthew 10, verse 28. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. So that rules out mom, the cops, you know, the FBI. and Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in a word you rarely hear. In a place almost no one speaks of. But Jesus speaks of, he says, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We do not like that kind of message. It is not warm and fuzzy. It does not make us all feel good. Now let's stand and sing and pray. We're not, you know, it's not it. But it's exactly the kind of message we need to hear. Why? Because first of all, it's true. And secondly, it's meant to drive us to Jesus for safety. So anyway, Luke says that when the native people saw the creature hanging from Paul's hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Just look at what's happened to him. That's the most reasonable conclusion. He's a criminal. Though he has escaped from, from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So God is clearly meting out his justice upon this man. This man who carried the wood and was pierced in the hand. However, Paul shook off the creature. Following what's happening? He shook off the creature into the fire and, quite miraculously, he suffered no harm, thus demonstrating what? A power over death. To be bitten by the serpent is to die. Death has no hold on this man. And the natives are watching. It says, but when they had waited a long time, you see, the na- oh, I'm sorry, the natives were waiting for him to swell up, that sounds fun, or suddenly fall down like they had seen other people do with this, same kind of snake, but instead he violates all of their expectations. It says, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said, well, he's a god. He's mastered death. Death has no hold on him. And now in the neighborhood, Luke tells us, of that place were lands that belonged to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us, he says, and entertained us hospitably for how many days? Three days, okay? And if you know the story on the third day, Paul performs this great miracle of healing. In fact, all these people start coming and getting healed. It's amazing. Now, that's a snake story. And it's better than my story about the bow and arrow and my cousin and the belt and me running and screaming. In the it is, and not just because it involves a shipwreck, which does add a whole different level of intrigue. It's a great story because it's not just a story about Paul. It's a story about Christ. You get to the end of the book of Acts, and and Luke, who is a poet, Luke who writes in images, Luke who writes this book so carefully, is calling you to consider, in light of all the understanding of Scripture of the serpent, Jesus. He's giving us, in the life of Paul, a picture of Christ, you see? Who, with a major political storm, brewing all around him and his disciples they're conspiring to kill him and you know I mean all those guys know it they gather together in a room he gathers them you see and in that intimate gathering what does he do he takes the bread he blesses it he breaks it he distributes it. they, they all eat they partake of the last supper and they go out then to face the storm and Jesus is arrested and all of their hopes and dreams and expectations are shattered and they are literally scattered it's every man for himself. They all go running in different directions. And yet they all make it through safely. Meanwhile, Jesus is then taken to the house of the high priest, and we're told that it's a cold night, and so there's a fire burning. And people are warming themselves by the fire while these guys falsely charge and try and convict Jesus, these guys, but who are these guys? What has Jesus said of these guys? It's the religious leaders, you know that, but what did John the Baptist call them? What does Jesus himself call them? He calls them a brood of vipers. Every last one of them. Poisonous snakes. And so then at the behest of these vipers, what does Jesus do? He carries the wood. The wood upon which his hands will be pierced. And he's crucified between two criminals, which means if you're walking down the street and all you see is Jesus and two criminals, you would assume he was a criminal. That's the way it looks. Certainly that's the way it appears. And why was he crucified? Because the Romans required it, because the Jews required it ultimately, because God required it. It's cosmic justice. It is the wrath and the punishment of God for the sins of all who place their faith in Christ. It's cosmic justice. And yet he conquers death on the third day, which is, I think you'll agree, the ultimate miracle of healing. And violated everyone's expectations, at which point they concluded, maybe not a criminal, but instead, as he appears to his disciples, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. You remember? He's God. He's risen. So it's a great snake story, not because it's a story about Paul and a shipwreck and all that, though that is cool. But because it's a story about Jesus, the true Adam, the one who was not beguiled, if you will, by the lies of the serpent, the seed of the woman, the seed just marched through, who absorbed the sting of evil and death for His people and crushed the head of Satan in the midst of doing it. What He did on the cross. It's the story of Jesus who with His hard and great and strong sword has punished the serpent and slain the dragon, you see. It's the story of Jesus, the true bread from heaven, offered to everyone. And yet if you reject it, you face the judgment of God. You find yourself in the story you don't want to be in. However, if you receive it by faith, you're rescued as he takes the sting of the serpent for you. For it's also the story of this Jesus who met with Nicodemus so long ago on a very dark night. And how did he explain himself? He said, well, you want to know who I am and what I'm all about? Think about it this way. As Moses lifted up the serpent, this emblem of evil and death in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why? so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. They may be healed from evil and death. For God so loved the world. Do you hear that? Don't believe the lies of the evil one who would have you say, but not you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, that's it, whoever looks on him on faith for deliverance should not perish but have eternal life. So it's a great snake story because it's a story about Christ. And you get to the end of the book of Acts. And it's sort of like, you know, Luke is saying, all right, what what image do I want to leave them with? Hey, I know. How about this one? That's the message to us this morning. And that also is the message that you and I are supposed to take out into each one of our own little individual worlds, into this community, our world as a church and to the world beyond our borders. It's the message by which the kingdom is built. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for you are a great conqueror. We thank you for our Savior who has absorbed for us what we deserve. And I pray now, God, for faith. I ask, Lord, that you would give faith to all who are here. Faith to see Jesus, to look upon the lifted up one, and in doing so, to be forgiven, to be made clean and whole, to be found as a part of the family of God, to be called into God's kingdom, and then commissioned to go out to build it. Lord, we thank you for this vision of Christ that you give us by your Spirit through this man, Luke, And I pray that it would be compelling to us as we move through this week. Lord, let us not lose sight of who you are and of all that you've accomplished for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.